What episode is it? <laughs> what? <laughs> Two. All right. Just go back to singing to yourself. Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. Hello and welcome to episode two of the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. This episode is extremely serious because it deals with HIV policy and um, activism and yet Buckers manages to um, snigger partway through because our guest, Mercy Shabemba, is Mercy is also the name of a song by who is it? Um, Duffy, who is Welsh? Is she? Who is yeah. Duffy? Should we get on She's the a show? singer. <laughs> I would love to get Duffy on the show. Great, make it happen. Talented woman, fantastic uh, accent. <laughs> she did a great song called Mercy. <laughs> so now we've heard about her, let's talk about our guest. Mercy, you remember? <laughs> She's a, a young person who has... She's just demonstrated resilience, creative thinking, self-mastery, all the things that that inspire me as a person. Mercy's bringing along in um, shopping trolley loads full. She's a she's an incredible person. She manages to make a very heavy subject also super engaging, and there's some um, lols in there as well. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Here's Mercy Shabemba. Welcome, Mercy, to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've already started calling it a show because, yeah, it doesn't have, it doesn't adhere to any of the rules of a normal podcast and we go wildly off topic. Got to think big. That's good. That's good to hear. We um, we do make um editorial decisions over the guests and you're definitely here for a reason because I am really interested in you know your career as an activist and how that came about and how clear you were when you were younger about um um about your future but um yeah it um warning it often just collapses into (laughs) tangential nonsense where um where are you joining us from today Mercy? So I live in Greater Manchester, so that's where I'm joining you from. It's currently raining outside, so um, it's like a homage to my life growing up in Wales. That because we have a little bit of a in um, in some of the recordings of you giving incredibly exciting and um, enigmatic speeches on stage. There's a little Welsh twang. That's what people say. They like. You don't notice it like in your face, but in some yeah. words and stuff, it sort of just arrives. It's it's nice, and Thanks. it makes um, it makes you seem trustworthy. That's one of the funny things about the Welsh accent, <laughs> isn't it? We all trust the Welshies. I mean, I don't blame people. So, what was it like growing up there? No, it was lovely. I I loved growing up in Cardiff. Um, I just think it's a fantastic city, um, but I also. I have one of those relationships with it where it's like, you know, you grow up somewhere and you're like desperate to get out and then you kind of get out and then 
you go back and it's entirely different to how you left it and you sort of like whoa like it's a stranger to me um so I, I have a lot of love for Cardiff but I don't know who Cardiff is anymore in some ways so yeah what were you like at school oh gosh I was in primary school I was like I was cute and I was enthusiastic and all of those things in high school I was just I was just a nightmare I think when I applied myself I was really good um but just as a person I was just quite cheeky and outgoing and I had a lot going on anyway so yeah it was an interesting mix did you know what job you wanted to do when you're growing up Oh yeah. So when, when I was eight, I, so I, I'm an eldest sibling. And so I, yeah, I've always been kind of like, this is the way we're going and I'm going to take the lead and move forward with this. Um, so when I was about eight, I drew up a life plan until I was like 40 and announced it to my family and said, you know what, this is, this is it. This is the roadmap. And I had like, I'd mapped out, I, I, I couldn't even tell you what a smart goal was, but I had mapped out like the steps and how that step was going to inform the next bit of the plan. So I had all these plans about, I'm going to do these GCSEs and then I'm going to do these A-levels and I'm going to go to university to do this subject. And then I'll do a PGC, then I'll become a teacher and then I'll teach abroad for a little bit. And it was, it was, it was quite intense, but actually my parents were really on board with it. They were just like, look, if this is what you want to do and you know what you need to apply yourself then go ahead run with it well if you're one of multiple siblings they must have just thought great that's one off our task sheet exactly done she's self self-sufficient age eight <laughs> exactly <laughs> i wonder what it would be like to look at that now i bet it's adorable like if you could find it somewhere it, yeah it's it's funny oh, because i just think plastic. she had no like eight-year-old me just had no idea about the world in a big way and I can I can tell when I kind of look back on it like my and not in a like critical way but my mindset was just so small and like my little world was just so tiny and um, yeah I wish I could tell her like oh my gosh there's all of these other things that you could do and do end up doing. How old are you now Mercy? I am 22 I'm gonna be 23 in a few months um, which is crazy. Well, it's good timing because hopefully you'll get to celebrate. Exactly. Hug. We'll come over and give you a hug. Great. Sounds good. No, it's just... PPE free. Mm-hmm. Boris said Boris's lift of everything is on the 21st and my birthday's on the 29th, so I might just do a week-long extravaganza. Un espectáculo. <laughs> Fireworks, all kinds of things. Just go wild. And how do you describe your career now? You're an activist, but you're also part of the HIV Commission. What's that? What's the Commission? Um, So the Commission was a group of people that um, kind of got together and said, okay, we've got a real chance of eliminating new HIV transmissions and it probably works best if we have a group of people that are across different sectors and expertise to kind of get their heads together along with an advisory group and like the general population and other people who want to feed into it and make recommendations to the government because they had committed to that. Well, Matt Hancock had said by 2030, I don't want to see any new cases. And so it was like, okay, Matt Hancock said this, but, probably doesn't know how to get there. So we came up with, I think it's 30 or 20. It's, 
I can't remember off the top of my head right now, um, recommendations. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's gone well. It's landed well with the government. Um, I was 21 when I joined it. And I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, like this is, like this is a big thing to kind of take on. Um, but I always love that any opportunity I'm handed or I, I have been handed, it always comes with the caveat of like, we'll look after you and we'll help you like be the person that you need to be for this. I always kind of describe it as like, I'm always given like clothes that are too big for me, but because people believe in me, they like help me grow into them. And I think for me, that's one of my favorite parts about my career. I feel like there aren't, there are, there are a few, there are very few situations where I feel alone or like I'm not enough um, because I've always had the help and support to be more than enough. Buckers is like <laughs> taking notes. <laughs> I'm not sure if the notes are for um, the show notes or if they're just personal, if you're just learning, if you're in learning mode at the moment, <laughs> Buckers. I just like, it's when, I hear, when I hear it's something really, really good, I've got to write yeah. it down. I don't Aww. even know what I'm writing it down for at this point. <laughs> like, it's just when you hear something and you know I've got to remember that, it's really good. Who inside the commission, like what, what kind of other people? You had a variety, so there'd be some medical professionals in there, who, who some legal people maybe. Who who else was in the commission? So there were some MPs. There were people that have kind of worked in the media. Um, somebody who was like quite high up. He's like the head of LinkedIn for like Europe and the e, EMEA. I can't remember the acronym. Um, and then there were other activists like me, um, who were living with HIV. Um, there were people who were religious leaders. Um, there were people, yeah, who are scientists and academics in the field. And that's what I liked about it. I think oftentimes when thinking or talking about the HIV sector, it's very much like we all speak to each other and like we don't do enough of looking at how other institutions or sectors do things and how that can help us in influence and change. And um, that's only one aspect of the work you do, isn't it? Yeah. Can you tell us about the other? You've patched a load of different things together quite cleverly. Yeah. So I guess, you know, kind of slightly going back to my um, ridiculously long life plan. I So I, I sort of, I left, when I was about to leave university, um, I had done the English degree that I had told everybody that I was going to do when I was eight. Um, but I was just <laughs> like, I don't want to be a teacher. Like, why Why would I want to do that? And I think, you know, my growing up, my father, he's a civil engineer. So I always had sort of thought a career was something that you pick at university and then for the next, like, 40 years. That's just what you do. Um, but, yeah, I kind of... I ended up getting a job in the charity sector. Um, but I, like, I love doing a range of different things. And I'd been able to work on some really fun projects whilst I, I was at university. But I was like, they're not going to pay the bills, so I need to find a proper job. Um, so I kind of got a job in the charity sector and then kind of corona coronavirus hit um and i ended up leaving that role um but i got um so i'm i'm working on a few different projects so um weirdly because of covid like i'm able to speak at so many yeah. more places yeah. and so public speaking actually kind of 
picked up and not in like a I'm like now on a six figure speaking career but as in like you know I was doing enough that it was like oh actually like this is this gives me a nice boost in like in the month um and so I kind of do public speaking and then I'm working on a project that's to do with youth participation in clinical trials and research um so I do that with somebody who again going back to kind of having clothes that are too big for me um somebody who met me when I was 16 was like hey um I've got this project like do you want to do this role for a little bit um and I just thought it sounded great so that's kind of part of what I do um and then I work for a national like a big national charity part-time that kind of is my job to pay the bills um on again youth participation and their internal strategy but that's very new that started like december november with youth participation in clinical trials basically mm -hmm. you're like the go-between the the person who translates the young people for the institutions yeah so it, effectively it was kind of looking at the issue of okay, there are all these people that run clinical trials and have all this money and power. I mean, obviously, a clinical trial costs millions to do. And they always say that their end goal and everything that they do is about children and improving children's lives. But when's the last time they spoke to a 12-year-old about the trial or got a, or gave a 12-year-old a voice in the process of creating a trial, um, you know, in terms of, like, picking what treatments they're going to have? Like, some of the treatments aren't fun. And if if you ask that 12 year old, they would tell you they do not want to do that. And, it, you know, urge you to find a different way of measuring that. Um, and so obviously, then there were a bunch of kids that like myself, have grown up with a chronic health condition, and have always had this relationship with medical care, that's like, they do things to you rather than do things with you. And so yeah, I'm kind of the go between between, okay, this is how you feel about your healthcare. You have a voice and you have opinions, and these are the people that run them. How can we get you guys to work together and give give you a voice in this process? You're also a pretty decent writer. Oh gosh, I wouldn't say that. I think so. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I do a little bit of writing. So I my first like proper scientific article um came out two weeks ago now i think um so yeah i'm do i'm doing like a, a a a course type of thing so there's there's um an organization called aids map and they've got an emerging voices program and so they're kind of like training up new voices in the field to be able to write um and so i've been like doing that with them it's been really fun but really nerve-wracking I think doing an English degree made me fall out of love with writing and reading and so I've had to kind of learn to love that again something that eight-year-old Mercy didn't forecast nope I did not there's a, <laughs> there's a flaw in her plan yes. <laughs> and um she didn't know about her health status no she didn't and that's part of why I think the plan was so so boring <laughs> but she would have been attending regular hospital appointments. Yeah. Yeah. So I, for as long as I can remember, I went to the hospital every three months. In Cardiff. In Cardiff, yes. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever been to Cardiff, but there's this really nice park called Roth Park. Um, and it's quite near to the hospital. And I remember 
like my nurse and I would just, I would go to the hospital and my nurse would be like, all oh, right, let's go to like the hospital kitchen. And I have this really vivid memory of like her and I walking through all these like long corridors and like all of this, you know, just what a hospital is like. And we've gone to the kitchen um, and they just like finished making lunch for the day. And uh, we we asked them if they had any bread left over. And like they come out and they're like, yeah, of course we do. Like, here's all this bread. And we sort of get in the car from the hospital and we go to this Roth Park and we're just feeding the ducks. And I genuinely just in my little head just thought that every child just like, did this on the regular and went to the hospital. I was just like, this is so nice. That, like the NHS cares about me so much that I get to go there every three months, have these blood tests, get weighed, get measured. Like, you know, it's all very comprehensive. Um, and it's funny because I speak to other people that grew up with HIV and they're like, no, I was constantly asking why I was doing this, but I was just, I was just happy to go happy along to with it there. all. Um, I had no... Yeah, I just had no questions, even though, you know, my younger sister wasn't going to the hospital. She wasn't taking the same tablets as me every day. Like there was, yeah, there were very big glaring gaps in like, this is a strange situation. Um, but in my kind of childlike wonder of just the fun of it all, I just never asked. How sweet though, how sweet. Was that combination therapy? Yes, yeah. So when you, so if this... 2021 now you were born after that was the major breakthrough yeah. that changed the outlook mm -hmm. for people living with HIV and that was in the 90s yeah. wasn't it yeah it was and I think I think about that quite often actually because I think it's something like around the time I think like 50% of children born with HIV didn't live to see their second birthday and I just think gosh like there was a, a one in two chance that I, I just wouldn't have been here. And I, yeah, it sounds so cliche and stuff, but I genuinely have to stop to appreciate that actually I'm in a position where I made it. And that isn't the case with so many kids. Um, and even though, of course, I spent my childhood berating that I took medicines every day, but now that I understand the impact and the life they've allowed me to live, um, I'm just really grateful. I'm really grateful too. <laughs> Thanks. I think, um, yeah, it's just, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it? So, because you were born, uh, people, older people who lost, who had lost loved ones to that disease. It's interesting in terms of how it affects people's responses to you, because one of the, one of the fascinating things is when you were, when your um, um, viral status was communicated to you by your where your caregivers by your doctors when how that changed your your perception of like fitting in and you know that kind of stuff like the world around you because older people they've got their own baggage related to HIV but did you did your contemporaries have that baggage left to pass down to them by their parents like bullying I'm talking about like um, bullying and misinformation that kind of stuff was that around in Cardiff when when you were, got your diagnosis? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember. I I vividly remember. And my my doctor and I talk about it. Well, my old doctor now, and I talk about it. You know, she kind of talks about. Obviously, they they had to do lots of preparation to be like, right, we're going to tell Mercy this, and who knows how it's going to go, and all of this stuff. And you know, she sort of just remembers, sort of like, um 
me because it was a really weird situation so i like we went to the hospital and we were like went in this room that we'd never gone in before and all of this stuff where the i was just, yeah and i like i was a kid so i was just like why have we not gone to the place where all the toys are like this is just really strange you know when everyone's looking at you and like they're trying to tell you something but like you're just like why is everyone looking at me so i was just kind of like this is really like there's a real focus nerve-wracking yeah i was just like there's a yeah. real focus on me here like i don't like i like i knew i hadn't done anything so i was just like this is so weird and like yeah i remembered the week i think it might not be the week before but like the the appointment I had had before that, um, I just remember there being a really lengthy chat between my doctors and my parents, and I was like, "This is taking a lot longer than usual." But I was busy playing with toys, so like, and having an afternoon off school, so whatever. Um, but back to my point, I remember sitting there. And, you know, they're all going on about all this stuff and they're talking about white blood cells and red blood cells. And they, they tried to they use some sort of analogy. And I was just like, I was never into science. I didn't want to be there. I thought it was really weird how they were kind of interacting with me because they weren't they weren't usually on edge like this. Um, and then they sort of just said, you know, like, do you, do you know what we're getting at? And I was like, not really. And I remember them saying, like, <laughs> you know, spell it out. Yeah, I remember them, you know, sort of spelling it out. And then they all just looked at me and I was just like, okay. But that's the interesting dynamic that you work with now because they're bringing into that conversation their history and their projection of what that those words mean, which you're completely innocent of, like in the in the purest sense of the form, and just like, all right, then, well, everything seems to be fine. Let's just exactly. So I, I'm just like, okay, like calm down, what, everyone. What do you want me to do with this information? Because as well, I I I've lived with this my whole life. It's not like I've had aches and pains that I've questioned every morning. Like I've, I never got to a situation, thankfully, where I was really ill that I like knew of, or I was in hospital. Like it, it's been a really weird condition for me in the sense of like, I've never felt the effects of it physically. Um, and so, yeah, I remember kind of just being like, okay. And then I remember the conversation after, which was very much like, you know, this isn't something that's accepted in society. And it was very like, we're not, we're trying to guard you um, and try and trying to get you to understand the gravity of what this means in the world. That's um, such an interesting parental message, isn't it? Like, keep it in the box. Yeah. Just keep it. That's fine. Just keep, keep it in the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, like, my sister didn't know, so it was kind of like, we're not going to mention this to her. Um, so I was just like, okay, like, cool. Like, can I get back to my life? Um, but then, yes, I, I soon learned that actually, yes, the, the stigma is real. And, you know, it can come about in terms of the jokes people make or the things that people share when they talk about it or how people respond when it's brought up in a biology lesson. People are like, oh, yeah, like my parents say it's so bad. Like you can get it if you just touch somebody um, or like, oh, my gosh, I would never share a drink with somebody with that because like you'll definitely get it then. And it was always just the way in which that person living with HIV was talked about that was just like, oh my gosh, like I, I get it now. This is what it means to be othered and cast aside because 
because of this thing when I knew, well, no, I take tablets every day and I get my blood tests every three months and I'm perfectly fine and healthy, but that wasn't translated. That, that would never have translated to my peers. And so I think both the combination of like, you know, we're not going to talk about it uh, to like in, in our family home. And this is how, this is how it, it is dealt with in conversations together was just like, oh my gosh, I have to be completely silent about all of this. The eight-year-old you describe doesn't sound like someone who can be easily silenced. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, I, and I think that's that's the hard thing, isn't it? Because, you know, if you're if you're somebody that acquired HIV in later life, it's probably an individual thing that you have to deal with and it's it's isolating in a different way um because it's just you and your experience but i think when you're a kid and you you carry both the burden and the the secrecy of your your status but also that family story that in oftentimes is very complicated and very sensitive and you know in my case not explored like it's not something that we talk about I've I've I remember so well sitting on the sofa with my sister and we watched um we watched in like some sort of home renovation show um and it was in like America or something and it was one of those ones where like they find really sad stories and then they redo the whole house and then um, they had gone to this for free. Yeah. And they, your diagnosis is so bad. You get a free extension. Yeah. So they, right. they'd gone to this orphanage for kids living with HIV. Oh gosh. And oh gosh, I just remember, you know, myself and my sister sitting on the sofa, like we love this show. We watched it all the time. And then my parents sitting in the other half of the, we had like an open plan living room where it's like kind of two halves and they were sitting on the other side. And my sister just says, of course she would say this. She's never heard about this before. She says, what's HIV? And I just remember being like, uh, and I just and remember- your, your mum like, fish fingers for tea. My parents just looking over like, like, what are you watching? And God. like, oh, we just no. never, we just completely skirted over it. And like, she, she never realized and, like you know now she knows it's funny she pressed she pressed the nuclear button but it's just you know those situations and i just think oh my gosh that's like so yeah it's just crazy to look back and think that we lived like that um, it's hard as a young person because in any family you carry you know you get messages when about what you can and can't say and how it affects people so like the classic dynamic is having a stressed mum and you know having to be all right so that you don't add more pressure on just like a mum you know it's a classic sort of psychological ping pong game and you've kind of got that but sort of on steroids you know because of you know how the decisions that she's had to make that your parents have had to make about when you're told what treatment you have what you're told about this who knows all of that is, is this an absolute labyrinth of potentially shame causing decisions and you can trigger them you know just by well you trigger them just by existing or just to, to, and no, just by knowing actually just by knowing like that's a before and after exactly isn't it? And you, know. I, you know just 
it would always be the little things it wasn't necessarily the big things and that's mm. that's what makes it even more difficult you know and it's like you just never know when those moments will come about because they'll just spring yeah. upon you when you just you have you have even though you don't have to resolve them you still have to deal with them because they're there in front of you and whatever way you choose to deal with them is a different matter but you know there's still the very real thing of like your kid has just asked you a question about something and we're, none of us in this room are prepared to answer it because we're scared that it will lead on to more more conversations is it currently life limiting currently is it considered yeah it's like presently is it considered a life limiting diagnosis no not in the, in UK, the uk no no that's massive that's yeah, a massive exactly. change that's again that's before and after combination therapy and um, let's um, talk about the, the work that you started doing, because the, the great thing about this story, the glorious part of this story, is how irrepressible your personality was. And, and having such a kind of heavy, well, not heavy, like a serious backstory in this sort of complicated point of difference between you and all the other students who are just like getting stoned and falling over at a university, you still managed to have fun and live your life. How, how? How did you How did you just manage to carry on being you? Like that kid who was just like, yeah, whatever, I'm going to have a good time and live my life. Yeah, I think I think I re I got to a point where I realised I wasn't being me and I didn't have a sense of me. I, I, I sort of had this childhood where everything was unknown and so I could just kind of crack on easily with, without the baggage of any of it. And then this stretch of time where I was dealing with situations like that and you know, I kind of describe it as a less glamorous Hannah Montana of this double life of trying to be this this young person who was really fun and full of life and carefree and confident and sassy, but but having this huge burden of shame and secrecy and not being able to actually address that in a way that was meaningful to me and talk about it. It felt very separate and that I couldn't bring them to together. Um, and then kind of just getting to a point of like, do you know what? I can't live like this. I can't live in a way that means that I'm not able to share this information with those that I want to share it with. Um, and that ultimately I'm just not able to be me. Um, and so I guess, yeah, my, my first couple of steps were, you know, I I got involved with um, the Children's HIV Association, which is a charity kind of called Cheever. And I, I met other young people like me. And I remember, you know, meeting somebody who had done an English degree and I was just like, oh my gosh, wow, like actually like these things are possible and I can be the me that I wanted to be at eight. And so I think it was just an awakening of like, do you know what? This this is it. This is your life. And you get to choose if you want to live in this horrible way and like be to like totally wrapped up in all of this negative stuff. Or actually, if you want to go the way that is it's still hard and it's not always going to be fun, but actually in a way that allows you to find you in everything and like mold yourself into the person that actually you you are at heart um and also take on you know the thing of like this isn't just 
and mercy is all about not having any of that and so how how can I do that even if it's in small ways um, and it was in small ways to begin with and now it's in big ways but I think for me it was just realizing I can't live a life of not being me because it's it's not going to protect your family yeah it's not it's not going to end up anywhere good um and if that's the case then like what's the point in being here like half of the kids born in your situation at at the time you were born did not make it until two like get it together and let's move on and like let's let's deal with this um and that 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 is that's just how it is like you so then you have to find fun and you have to find the joy because if you don't then it's almost like you just you're just given a well so what to to actually having a chance at life um and that just didn't go with who i am and the funny, well, not the funny, like the curious part of what you're describing is this kind of hero's journey that you went through takes you to a point when you have a unique set of skills and experience, which can actually not just advance your life, but can advance the lives of other young people with chronic illness because of the, you know, this job that has emerged out of it, you know? So you ended up having this crazy job that didn't exist for eight, eight-year-old Mercy. It just was unim- it wasn't on the list of things that she could have chosen. Civil engineer, nurse, doctor, dentist, pharmacist, whatever. And your job wasn't on the list. So it's given you, it's taken something from you, but it's also given you something. Exactly. And I, I think for me, even though the family situation was really hard growing up because none of us were able to address it and talk about it through my journey of doing that it's kind of brought restoration to that and so I I remember um you know I, I was on my way to South Africa for a conference um and as you do, as you do at the age of 22 just casual so casual I was in Florida, South Africa well I was 18 actually <laughs> I was yes yeah. so um, I was on my way there and uh, my my layover was in Istanbul in Turkey. And it was, uh, I don't know if you remember, there's a military coup a few years ago and it, that, that was the day. So my layover, which was meant to be like three hours, turned into like 26 hours or something because of this military coup. And I, like, it was all very dramatic and I was like... It was a bit hairy, to be honest, the situation. And I, I remember my, <laughs> I was on the way to a conference that was to do with HIV. It was called, it was called AIDS 2016. And I remember. You opened that conference That was 2018 I opened. So this one I went, I was just like very new to everything. And I, I remember, you know, on the, being on the phone to my dad and I was just like, I'm just going to get the first flight back to London. Like, I'm not doing this. I don't want to go. Like, you know, all of this. And I just remember him saying, no, you you have to go because you've got things to say and people who need to hear it. And I just, like, as soon as I heard that, I was just like, oh, my gosh, they they support the stuff that I do. It's not It's not a source of, like, pain and resentment but actually it's a source of like feeling really proud and happy for what I'm doing even though it's hard and even though it means they've had to have challenging and tough conversations actually it's been a weight lifted off them as well because none of us 
have to live in hiding anymore. And that's progression. You know, that's generational progression because you weren't born having witnessed the horror of pre-combination therapy, HIV diagnosis. And so that that wasn't a reality in your mind. And so you said, let's change. That, That that phrase that your dad said, that there's things you need to say and people who need to hear it, that's kind of, that's um, that's the end of a Tom Hank- Hanks movie, <laughs> surely. I mean, that's Tom Hanks level, right? It's just absolutely, that's the kind of, the mo- those those are the moments in life of connection and sort of being seen by a family member. That's as yeah, good as it gets. Exactly. That's beautiful, beautiful. And you got to the conference. You listened. You it landed, and you and you got your military coup. That can't. I'm a I'm a <laughs> military coup. Step out of the way. Yeah, and it's it's funny because like so many people that know me now are like, oh, I remember meeting you at the conference. But I was like, okay, I, maybe shy is an, an exaggeration, but I was I was nowhere near <laughs> who I am today. And it's funny just to look back and think, oh my goodness, like. You know, there I was just recovering from the trauma of a military coup and like having this sense that I needed to be there, Um, but also massively overwhelming. It's like, you know, there's like thousands of people at this conference. Um, But actually, that was a really pivotal moment for me to know that actually, whatever this ends up looking like, I'm supported. Two years later, you were invited back and you gave that opening speech, which we've seen on your Instagram page and on YouTube. It's pretty impressive. What did that feel like standing onto that on standing on that stage? What was that like that day? Um yeah, it was interesting. So it was in Amsterdam. Um and I yeah, I mean I I was out and stuff and I I I wanna say that day I think that day was like hugely busy. So I had done I'd done like the opening press conference and then I did that. And then I also interviewed Prince Harry that week. So there was literally like all of this stuff going on. But it is it was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like I don't know how to describe it. It's just like it was almost like I was watching myself do the things. But in terms of standing on stage, I think I don't want to say underwhelming because it was really fun. But I remember I, rem- I remember the preparation that had gone into it of like you know what, I need to, this is what I want to say, or this isn't what I want to say, and this is what I want to say. And there was so much back and forth of like, you know, this is the biggest talk of my life to date. Um, and then I remember there, there was a AIDS conference before before my time, really, I think. And there was this kid in South Africa, and I think he was 11, and he he'd done, he'd opened up and... He he had spoken about the need for medicine. It was in South Africa, I think. And um, I thought about him a lot. Sorry, this is really emotional. I thought about him a lot because he'd done this speech and then he died. But his speech was about what he needed. And I just didn't want to do a speech where everybody was like, yeah, woo, like amazing but the words never landed like in a tangible way. Um, And so I sort of had that feeling of like, this is really important to me, whether it's important to everyone else, I just have to let go of that. 
just just to kind of get through this um and so yeah i did it and you know you get the applause and i had the you know the princess from amsterdam come up to me after and be like oh my gosh you're amazing and all of this stuff but the whole time i just couldn't stop thinking about the the thing of like my whole life i've believed in the power of words but now i'm here giving them i don't know how powerful they truly are because the people I'm speaking to are standing in the front row and clapping when they should be taking notes. That's really heavy, but <laughs> that's that's no, no, no. It's and it's something really well illustrated by um, the the BBC documentary um, about Greta Thunberg and and the sort of the how difficult she found it to assimilate that idea. And you can see as her body tightens up and she's stressed and she's just like, I'm talking to you. And all the people clapping and wanting to sort of um, turn her into a mascot in a way because of her youth and, um, you know, her bravery. And they'd be like, wow, come and listen to that person. And all and all of them just sort of clapping and dabbing away a tear and not thinking that they had to take action. It's like, I'm talking to you. That was it's it's the same thing, isn't it? It's the same thing it's on you everyone to take action you you have mm -hmm. the power well, i think what you're describing is kind of stepping into that power you know that's a a maturation that you're describing you know that perspective a sense of perspective instead of just using that opportunity to yeah broadcast your feelings or your experience thinking about that perspective and how that rolls out that's you know, it's inspiring. It's so it's when <laughs> we've got to let Buckers jump in in a minute because um, you cruised past a bit about Prince Harry, <laughs> and um, <laughs> she nearly dropped her pencil. So we've got to have we've got to have the uh, ha ha Harry anecdote, the anecdote. Um, but yeah, from my point of view, it's just so you know, seeing you move into this career and handle it so deeply, it just is tremendously encouraging. We all develop, you know, we all mature at different <laughs> times. But it's not lost on me to remember when I was 22 and I just um, used to smoke pot, eat jacket potatoes and cry for um, about five, five years. What were you like when you were 22, Buckers? When I was 22, I was learning how to make the perfect macaroni cheese from my boyfriend at the time's mum. And she was teaching me the special way that he likes it. Wow. Wow. Oh. But I was trying to be the perfect housewife at the age of 22. So thanks, Mercy. <laughs> I'd almost take Fleur's option over that. Sorry, Buckers. It's just like... <laughs> like, so pathetic. This is terrible. Tell us about... Um... Prince Harry, you won an award, um, a mm -hmm. Diana Award, that was named named after his um, mother, who was a pioneer in the treatment of HIV. Can we? Can you talk about like her legacy? Yeah, so I, I got the award for her legacy, and it's that funny thing, isn't it? Of she died in ninety seven, and I was born in ninety eight, and so I wasn't. I yeah. All, all have, I know is tear up. You don't get misty eyed when we talk about Lady Diana. You know, like I all do. I know is is that you know the reference point of older people who are like you don't understand what, no, what don't she understand did and what it I meant. Was there. You know, and so um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm massively honoured, and you know, I've, I've obviously come to grow and learn more about who she was and what it meant. Um, but it, it's about that. It's about being unafraid to be you and that 
that for me just encapsulates it you know this this defiant courage that nobody can kind of snuff out and that that's what it's about it's about caring about what truly matters you know and she she showed that in what she paid attention to and the causes that she got behind um and the way she got behind yeah them. Exactly. i was in, in the early 90s i was um on the, oh, I was a club kid and I was in the gay clubs in the 90s. So I have a different perspective on HIV and lost people at that time. And um, what she did, which was utterly radical, was she just communicated, she just um, showed herself like touching and hugging and relating to HIV and AIDS patients in, in a normal human way, just like any other illness. And it was that was it was massive. It was radical because it was so much against the the doctrine of the time. It, 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 it's hard to describe how radical that was. It was another you know those great points of the direction you know of of the disease changed with that, and then with the scientific breakthrough with treatment. And um, what was did um, Harry give you the award? Yeah, so I got I got the award from Prince William and Prince Harry, um, and. I think I'd met Prince Harry maybe like two times before and we'd spoken about it um, because I, I was, I hadn't like publicly said anything about my status. So, um, you know, we'd, we'd spoken about coming out and what that would mean for me. And I was, you know, when he first met me, it was always like, yeah, that that's never going to happen like ever. Um, from you, you were saying yeah, I can't do yeah, that. Yeah, I was yeah. just like, that's just not in my frame of like yeah. reference. Um, and again, he was encouraging me of like, I, you know, not realizing how powerful my voice is. And and yes, stigma is real and very hard, but the only way you break through that is by tackling it. Um, and so we'd, we'd had these conversations and he knew where I stood. Um, and I, I just remember kind of getting on that stage and, uh, I, there's there's a video on my Instagram if you want to go see it, but I I kind of get on the stage and I I go to shake his hand and he hugs me, um, and I just remember he he was just chatting he he spoke to me and he was just um, I don't remember it verbatim, but he was basically saying that he was really proud of me because he he knew he was there when I wasn't out and there when I was like no, I don't want to take a picture with you, Prince Harry, because <laughs> the whole world does not know and, like, I'll have to explain why I'm here. He was there to know actually how tough it was to even say that HIV was a part of my life. And then he was also there when I said, you know what, I don't care anymore. Um, and that that journey was, yeah, really special. Um, yeah. And um, is there someone in my house? There is. Okay, mercy. <laughs> Hang on, let's find. Someone just find out who it is. Someone just walked past you. Find out who it is. Really creepy. Hi. Sorry, recording. Yeah, we are. We're recording a podcast. <laughs> Hi, it's nice to see you. Thank you too. I'm so sorry. That's fine. Welcome. All right, we're gonna we're gonna wind up. Just give us a few minutes. <laughs> so, Mercy, this is just so typical of the Real Work podcast. 
Oh, I hope you know that person. We have, <laughs> we dive in to the most serious. We're just getting to the denouement of this kind of epic hero's journey <laughs> when you're when you come you come out, you know, and talk about your own story. And yeah, we mucked up. We dropped the ball, didn't we, Marcus? <laughs> we dropped the ball. Who my was friend it? has arrived. It's my friend who um, cleans the house, but she hasn't been here for a year. To be fair, so I forgot it was today that it was recommencing. <laughs> So there we go. It's um, <laughs> the thing, before we wrap up, the thing that I admire so much about your story is your sense of agency and the your sense of maturity, how you kind of take, you know, you've taken control and also that you gave yourself time, exactly like the story you've just told us. You gave yourself time to decide. You didn't say, right, it all has to happen now. You let, you know, you let things unravel, which is... Um, which is a lovely way to do it. I think um, I think that's a wrap, isn't it? With the, I think we're about to get the Swiffer out. There's some <laughs> clunking going to start Swiffer. Henry the Hoover's about to come in. Get <laughs> <laughs> in on the action. So, this, is, this is the reality. Before then, we managed to create an intimate atmosphere like we were all together in the studio, but we're not. Okay, that's the reality of it. We're so not. I would like to be, though, after lockdown. I feel like um, we should definitely get together in the same room at Mercy. You're certainly someone... I'd like to know better in real life and I'm Thank sure you. people you listening to your story share that if we if they want to follow your career or get involved like what 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 should they do if people want to find out more about this kind of work yeah so they should follow me on Instagram and I'm currently having a website developed so I will I'll have updates on there uh I don't know when this is coming out but from April I'm gonna have a website I'm an extremely so, impatient person, Mercy. Okay. So it's probably out next week. No problem. From April, there'll be a website <laughs> and the link will be Great. in my Instagram bio. So Great. Yeah. Thank you for being an extraordinary guest. Thank, Thank you for you. having me. It's been great. Because <laughs> what can we do now? We'll just, just work around it. We'll just style it out. It's fine. It's my own you... fault. It's on my own timing. I forgot the whole thing. We'll get away with it. It's fine. <laughs> That's the end of this week's episode of The Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how <laughs> and tell people about it it all helps thank you for being here see you next time if you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore but the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core then you know who to call. Producer Buckers. She knows just what to do. Producer Buckers. To make your podcast dreams come true. She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo. A dab hand at audio. Find Producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative. Or click the link in the show notes. Come on everyone. Producer, Producer Buckers. If you want to hire the best. Producer Buckers. Just put it to the test, producer Buckers. Just press record, and she does the rest. <laughs>